the Beatles' words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Don't operate these conditions, boy. You know we're coming out. It's like it's like that. We're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've got so many songs, but I've got like my quantum of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 3 I'll be working through these recordings in sequence where possible. If you want to follow the story in real time, please go back to episode one and work your way through. However, I'll also give a brief recap of where we are at the beginning of each episode. Hopefully, if you've been listening to episode two and you like the granular approach, you'll appreciate what follows. So far, we've gone into a lot of detail about the start of the Get Back project. By the end of this episode, Paul will only just have arrived. I must give credit to the work of two great researchers, Doug Salpy, whose book Drugs, Divorce and a Slipping Image is the definitive resource for anyone interested in this period, and Dan Rivkin, whose blog is called They May Be Parted and is an ongoing project much like this one, building on the work of Salpy's book. My aim with this podcast is to create a companion piece to both these works, adding but not taking away from the extensive research already completed. Both Sulpies and Rivkin's works are highly recommended without reservation. And so to recap on the last episode. The first bit of footage shot for this project also opens the finished film Let It Be. A few seconds capturing road managers Mal Evans and Kevin Harrington pretending to set up the Beatles gear. The released film cuts from this to shots of Paul at the piano with Ringo. As we've seen already, this is rather misleading. On the first day, Paul is the last to arrive, strolling onto the set just after 11am, an hour and a half after the first piece of filming. In the interim, John and George have arrived, both taking roughly the same route from Isha on the London-Surrey border. The Nagra audio recordings resume as John and George begin tuning up and John plays the first of his new compositions. The song is Don't Let Me Down and we get our first inkling of the band dynamic. John merely plays the song and George, the superior musician of the two, quickly picks up the chords and begins to add embellishments. It's a skill that John hasn't quite mastered. 
The tape captures George shyly running through the chord sequence to his song All Things Must Pass and John riffs away clumsily, only occasionally sounding in key. Another attempt at Don't Let Me Down is already more polished, with George finding a vocal harmony that seems to anticipate an extra higher harmony from Paul to come later. The structure of the song hasn't been decided, so John tries a few permutations. As they continue to rehearse, Ringo arrives, takes a seat behind the drum kit and joins in seamlessly. Again, John gives no instruction, the band just know what to do. I'm hoping footage of this performance exists. There is a little bit of magic about it. If it does exist, I hope Peter Jackson uses it to open his new edit of the Let It Be film. Along with Ringo, another visitor has arrived. Sayama Sundra, a Hare Krishna devotee invited here by George. A lot of visitors and or well-wishers drop by to see the Beatles on this inaugural day for their new project. It seems since John took Yoko to every session, friends, hangers-on and other guests could seemingly come and go on set unchallenged. Yoko is present all through the recording so far, but it's easy to forget her presence as she remains silent during this early part of the sessions. The Let It Be film does her a disservice, showing her stone-faced and detached, a far cry from the opinionated and often humorous artist interviewed with John in late 1968. Mostly what the camera captures is her boredom at these sessions and yet plenty of footage has emerged of Yoko practically involved in performances, particularly the jams. That said, in a way her presence eggs John on to be more freeform. As the Twickenham sessions frequently descend into tuneless, formless jamming, Yoko can be seen grinning, vocalising and although still seated, upper body dancing. Ultimately, this is a dead end for the band, but more about this later in the series. We now rejoin the band after a break in the recording. Georgie is now demoing a song for John and Ringo. The tape is turned back on in time to capture a performance of George's song, Let It Down. John attempts to play along. Mostly, he's just distracting. John comments... It will take him three weeks just to learn the chords. Perhaps a reference to the time limit the Beatles have set for themselves. January 15th or 18th are tentative dates, but this must be discouraging for George. It's a great chord. What is it? It's like... It's the, the three... First George attempts to show John the unfamiliar chord shapes. Just the first, second and third. Then with those two... And open bottom e. Let It Down is a George Harrison song composed over the Christmas period of 1968. It boasts some ostentatious sounding chords E major 9th, C suspended 2nd, A suspended 4th, C add 9th over G, F major 7th over E, and so on. In fact, the song is built around three chord shapes played in different positions on the guitar neck, much like McCartney's Blackbird. The E major 7th shape in the intro and the interludes between each verse becomes A major 7th when played at the 7th fret. The A suspended 4th of the bridge becomes C add 9th over G when it moves from the 5th to the 3rd fret. The verse features 
a pleasing angular chord change from E major 9th to C suspended 2nd. The chorus is the same chord shape as the bridge section, now played on the 7th fret, descending to the 5th and resolving on what sounds like flamenco-inspired dissonant chords, F-sharp 7th over E, chromatically moving down to an open E7th. George may have been listening to some flamenco guitar music. His song, I Me Mine, brought later to these sessions, draws on this influence more overtly. John, despite complaining about the complex chords, was more than capable of wrapping his fingers around these shapes. 1964's She's a Woman features similar or even harder seventh chord shapes. Its structure is fairly traditional. Intro, verse, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, chorus, repeat and fade. The differing sections stitched together by a two chord interlude. The song is definitely a strong contender for the Beatles live show, especially if they'd approached it in the heavy style that George finally adopted for his own solo version. As such, it's very much a missed opportunity and a sign of how George's status in the band hierarchy allowed him to be easily discouraged. Lyric-wise, the song probably hasn't aged well. It openly discusses a couple suppressing their true feelings for each other as they conduct an illicit affair under the nose of a spouse or partner. The chorus is a lustful cry to this figure to drape her hair all over him. In a sense, it is George's Norwegian wood. Being autobiographical, it serves as a confession to his wife Patty that he has been less than faithful. As we shall see, this was in fact no surprise to Patty. Let's investigate this further. George's home life at this point was in turmoil. The clandestine affair hinted at in Let It Down was not the big secret he'd hoped it would be. George's wife Patty left the family home in some distress at the time of this day's session, or possibly at the weekend. Later Patty wrote, I was friendly with a French girl who was going out with Eric Clapton. She was always flirtatious with George, but so were a lot of girls, and he, of course, loved it. Then she and Eric broke up. Eric told her to leave, and she came to stay with us at Kinforms. It was January 1st, 1969, and George and I had seen in the new year at Silla Black's house. We arrived home in good spirits, but then everything went swiftly downhill. The French girl didn't seem remotely upset about Eric and was uncomfortably close to George. Something was going on between them and I questioned George. He told me my imagination was running away with me. This timeline may be a little condensed. It's reported that George was in the Apple offices on the 1st, bragging about having two girls at home waiting for him. His family troubles may have affected his change of mood later on. The French girl was 20-year-old Charlotte Martin. Charlotte was born Catherine Martin in Paris, but a change of location and name was to prove to be a path to success. At the time, her doe-eyed beauty and waif-like frame adorned poster ads for Coca-Cola. Martin was introduced to Eric Clapton at the Speakeasy Club in London, and he was instantly smitten. In his autobiography, Clapton referred to her as one of the great loves of his life. Charlotte's London connections helped further Clapton's cultural development. Through Charlotte, Eric met Martin Sharp, who went on to write lyrics for Clapton's then-band Cream, as well as design their gaudy cover art. After two years, her relationship with Clapton came to an end, 
as the guitarist became increasingly enamoured with George's wife Patty. One has to wonder at what kind of unreconstructed chauvinist gentleman's agreement had taken place to allow George to engage in this dalliance with Clapson's ex. Was Eric hoping George would run off with Charlotte, leaving a vacancy in Patty's life that he could fill? Did either man consider that these women might have a say in who they chose to be with? Perhaps it was all just a coincidence. Whatever charms Charlotte possessed, George was faced with the choice. And in the end, he chose to stay with his wife. Patty had gone to stay with friends, Belinda and Jean-Claude, the latter being the fiancé Patty had ditched for George in 1964. This may have sparked enough jealousy for George to make up his mind. It is interesting to note that the brief affair spans virtually the entire length of the Twickenham portion of the Get Back sessions. It remains to be seen from these recordings if the stress of George's home life had any bearing on his decisions later on. As for Charlotte Martin, she went on to have a long relationship with Led Zeppelin guitarist Jimmy Page and has one daughter with him named Scarlett. Now in her 70s, she is an accomplished landscape artist, while Scarlett has gone on to become a successful rock photographer, even shooting pictures of Paul McCartney. John sings, Don't Let Me Down, right to the chords of Let It Down. George complains about his Les Paul guitar and asks for a screwdriver. Mal Evans wrote a column for the Beatles monthly book, a contemporary fan magazine. In late 1968, he wrote about the recording of one of George's songs called Not Guilty. He said... This is one of the two August recordings you won't hear on the new album because they were dropped at the last minute in favour of more recent numbers. Interesting note, he used Lucy for the first time on this session. Lucy is a fantastic, solid red Gibson guitar that was given to George at the beginning of August by Eric Clapton. Recording began on August 7th at EMI Studios. The guitar you hear George fiddling with during these sessions is the self-same SG Red Lucy. The name, one can assume, was inspired by B.B. King's guitar named Lucille, or possibly it's a reference to John's Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. The red finish was not original. When the guitar had left the production line in 1957, it had been painted in the company's then standard gold. Prior to its coming into the possession of Eric Clapton, the guitar had belonged to Rick Derringer. At the time, he was a member of the McCoys. Later, he would become well known for his work with Steely Dan and the Edgar Winter Group. Derringer, in turn, had bought the guitar from John Sebastian of The Loving Spoonful. Rick loved that guitar, even though it was extremely well played, most of the gold paint having been worn away. At the time, the guitar was fitted with a Bigsby tremolo unit. After finally giving in to complaints from his dad about the condition of his instrument, Derringer took the guitar back to the factory in Kalamazoo and requested the red refinish, giving the guitar a unique look. The Bigsby unit was removed and a stop bar tailpiece was added. However, after the work was completed, the guitar lost its original feel and part of its charm for Derringer. The change to the bridge assembly seemed to make the guitar hard to keep in tune, 
I think this is the same issue that George is trying to fix now. Disappointed, Derringer traded the guitar in at Dan Armstrong's guitar shop in Manhattan, New York. It was here that Eric Clapton found it and made the purchase, especially for George. I think I bought it in um, New York. Right. You know, there were a lot of time spent in New York in the 60s where I was uh, <clears throat> traveling around with Cream. And I can't remember whether I was with Cream. It may have been. You see, George is capable, would have been capable of setting this up. I remember bringing it back from America and wanting to give it to him because I, I, I already had one, I think. I had another Les Paul. Um, and then I, and I gave it to him. George immediately switched from his Gibson SG guitar, which he played since 1966, to Lucy. He's pictured in the promotional clip for Revolution playing this guitar on September the 4th. A day later, Lucy made her most celebrated appearance on a Beatles record, this time back in the hands of Eric Clapton, drawing the mournful solo out of her for George's While My Guitar Gently Weeps. When, when he asked me to do the, the session for Gently Weeps, I did because I, he, he, it sounds right because he, he picked me up from where I was living in London and said, we're going to go over to the studio, do you, do you want to come along? And I said, yeah, and he said, well, um, I want you to play on something. And I didn't have a guitar, because I was just got in the car with him, you know, and so I, he gave me this to play. So he could have put a Marshall in there, knowing that he was gonna ask me to come and play, you know, just to make it like, well, we got this and we got that, you know. Lucy was George's first choice for a live performance. But as we shall see, his desire to have a sound distinct from John's Epiphone led him to experiment throughout these sessions. He starts adjusting the bridge. To do this, he slackens the strings. He's turned his guitar down, but you can still hear him doing it beneath the sound of John riffing away. in here from John. Is that your first? A little comment from George to Ringo about, is that your first cigarette? I think Ringo was trying to give up. John plays Brown Eyed Handsome Man. Brown Eyed Handsome Man is a Chuck Berry song, originally released as the B-side of Too Much Monkey Business, a song which was in the Beatles' repertoire all through their club years and was recorded for the BBC radio programmes that were so crucial to raising the band's profile in Britain. It's very likely that Berry's original is where the Beatles first heard the song. Crammed into record store browseries, devouring American B-sides, looking for songs that would give them the edge over their competitors. They may also have been familiar with the version released posthumously by Buddy Holly. 
Lyrically, it's another satirical masterpiece of lyric writing by Berry. In the recordings known as the Million Dollar Quartet, Elvis Presley sings one audacious chorus after another to an audibly gobsmacked Jerry Lee Lewis. What's surprising here is that John can remember the complex words to this song when he struggles with his own lyrics throughout the Beatles' live career. George seems to be checking the intonation on the high E string and B strings. He does this by playing an open string and then playing the same note on the 12th fret of the guitar and checking their in tune. Interesting that despite his wealth, Ringo favours matches. John demos his part of a new Lennon McCartney collaboration, I've Got a Feeling. We'll come back to this later. Although he doesn't seem to remember at this time Paul's part. While George is still fiddling, John also plays an unfinished composition, Case of the Blues. Case of the Blues is an unfinished song idea based on just four chords. It makes its first appearance here and its last on the 7th of January, four working days later. John had demoed this song at home in December, and bootlegs exist if you care to look for them. Whilst it's a simple song, it's more in keeping with the planned rock and roll show the Beatles had wanted to do. In fact, the nonsense lyrics about albino glasses and knock-kneed shoes seem like a precursor to the song Come Together, later recorded for Abbey Road. As it stands here, John doesn't develop it any further. George is now tuning the guitar back up from very, very slack strings. with the little riff there it's an E major chord and he's hammering on to make it E suspended fourth a little churchy riff and George is still tuning his strings up
Last year, I'm not doing a bad job playing some blues riffs. It's not dissimilar to what Elvis was playing in December in his comeback special. John, filling in time, starts Child of Nature, which the rest of the band seem to know well. It's now called On the Road to Marrakesh. On the Road to Marrakesh, or Child of Nature, is now a familiar song to even non-Beatle fanatics, having been released with the three-disc White Album remix in 2018. Its origins go back to the Beatles' trip in February 1968 to India to study transcendental meditation under the tutelage of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. The inspiration for the lyrics appears to be a lecture given by the Maharishi regarding nature and man's connection with it as children of nature. The sentiment clearly registered with Paul McCartney as well as Lennon. His mother nature's son has the same theme and it may be the similarity in concept of this song that led the Beatles' decision not to record it. Here, the lyrics have been altered from the Oso-1968 Rishikesh to a more trippy, hippie, idealised Marrakesh. It does feel like a half-hearted attempt by John to distance himself from the Maharishi's teachings. Given how vehemently he condemned the guru later, the song, however, was still a contender when demos were made at George's Isha bungalow in May 1968. Perhaps it was John's final complete rejection of transcendental meditation after connecting with Yoko that sealed the song's fate. Or perhaps John was all too aware of the song's inherent flaws. I probably don't need to explain that by 1971 the song had been rewritten completely as the moving love song Jealous Guy. In that version the lyrics perfectly matched the tune, hitting the same emotional and dramatic peaks as the music. Child of Nature, or On the Road to Marrakesh, lacks that lyrical engagement and may possibly have been words tacked onto an existing tune that John was working on. There are a number of logical and syntactical contradictions in the lyrics. The lines, sunlight shining in your eyes as I face the desert skies, and where the wind that never changes touch the windows of my soul, are particularly clunky. The overwrought lyrics are in fact parodied by Lennon, warbling the bridges on the Isha demo, so he clearly has doubts. It is therefore fortunate that John's own quality control was allowed to take over and turn what would have been a mediocre Beatles track into one of his finest solo pieces. The song structure is a simple first chorus repeat construction. The two chord sequences use the same trick of a familiar chord change repeated but with a dramatic twist on the second repeat. For instance, in the bridge, E minor changes to D seventh echoing the first two lines of the verse, the repeat this time ending on a strident C matched to the highest note of the verse. In the chorus, 
the G to F to C repeats G to F ending in an unexpected crescendo on B flat. In addition, John cleverly repeats the Child of Nature hook in a minor key over a descending run, G, F sharp minor, E minor. The end of the chorus, I'm one of nature's children, fails to land. This is where the hook and title line and payoff of Jealous Guy resides, but here it's absent. The gap between chorus and next verse is typical Lennon, impatient as ever, without pause, ploughing straight into the next verse after only half a bar. His session musicians for Jealous Guy would fix this issue for him. George already knows the song well and sings and plays along competently. Since George owned the tapes of the demos recorded in his house in 1968, it's fair to presume he used them to learn the songs. He certainly knows the song better than Paul does when a rehearsal is attempted later on. Here at Twickenham, John is digging back into an archive of older rejected songs to try to meet the demands of creating more product for the band, much as he did in the early Beatle years, repurposing primitive song ideas. In fact, one song they'd already failed to modernise in 1963 will reappear during these sessions, once again due to a lack of new material from John. More on that, of course, later. Sulby states that they're singing off mic, but, as you can tell, there are no mics. George comments on the lack of equipment. Where's the console and all that? The, which the what? The mixer and the eight tracks and all that. I was done for the beer for a rehearsal. Ethan Russell, the photographer for this project, has stated that director of photography Tony Richmond wanted to start with a blank set and gradually add coloured gels to the lighting in the backdrop. Similarly, it could have been an intentional concept for the filming to show the gradual development of the band's stage set and recording equipment, starting from nothing and building to something. We'll probably write some fast ones here together, you know. John already worrying about not having enough fast songs in their set. George starts Dylan's I Shall Be Released, which John also knows, and he sings and plays along. They've possibly learned this from the band's version on music from Big Pink. I Shall Be Released is a 1967 song by Bob Dylan. As I've said, first recorded by the band on their album Music from Big Pink. George may have heard this in person from Dylan when he stayed at the singer's house at the end of November 1968 or he'd gotten a copy of Dylan's Basement Tapes and heard it there. John has clearly heard the song too and sings an enthusiastic harmony to George's lead. While both men were big Dylan fans, John had struggled to make any real connection in person with Bob. It's not documented, but it must have irked him a little to know that George had collaborated on some songs with a great man. For George, his treatment as an equal by the spokesman for a generation was a boost to his self-confidence that was about to take a severe knock from his bandmates. George points out the set list on Paul's bass. John starts to play the main riff from Sun King, which seems to be inspired by I Shall Be Released. Ringo calls for Kevin. They start discussing something that's a rectangle and it's enamel. 
I'm assuming it's part of the drum kit. George comments, between a persistent smoker's cough, about the hot studio lights. There's a time check from the crew. 11 o'clock. It's now an hour and a half since the first shots were filmed. Roll three. That definitely sounds like a piece of Ringo's kit. George Martin arrives. George Martin should need no introduction. He had been essential to maintaining the high standards of the Beatles' output since 1962. He turned their songs into records, and there is a difference. Many of his creative ideas shaped how Lennon and McCartney would write and arrange their material, and what material they chose to work on. His orchestrations rapidly raised the bar on how pop music was perceived by serious music critics. This work culminated in his production for what was then the high watermark for recorded music, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Throughout 1968, however, George, now no longer an EMI employee, found himself sidelined by the band, only called upon to listen out for the best of many tens to hundreds of tedious recorded takes. As such, he'd excused himself to go on holiday in the middle of sessions for the White Album. His role in this project at the start is unclear. He does make an uncredited appearance in the Let It Be film, watching from the sidelines, but at this early stage, all that's being prepared for is a live show, and the sound for that is being handled by Glyn Johns. The premise of the Get Back project was the antithesis of everything the Beatles had learned from Martin, an unadorned live performance. George Martin commented later that he'd lost control at this point and felt he was becoming redundant. It's worth pointing out that while George Martin and Glyn Johns were on set this first day, the only recording done was by the film crew. George did seem to be in charge of securing the sound equipment for the project, but aside from that, he was swallowed up in the overwhelming scale of the Twickenham space, unable to be much more than a spectator. In the presence of George Martin, the three Beatles demo, Don't Let Me Down to Him, Ringo back on drums. Paul arrives during this performance to find his bandmates have already got something rehearsed without him. George is reading the set list from the side of Paul's bass for Paul. This is from their last gig at Candlestick Park, San Francisco in 1966. And it seems like it's a million years ago. And it's right-handed. <laughs> yeah. Kevin! More about this next time. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.